Matthew chapter 7. We are teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' vision for the kind of life that is possible if we apprentice under him as our rabbi, if we organize our life around three goals, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what he did. That is what it means to apprentice under, or just in our language, to follow Jesus. And we're nearing the end. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We left off a few weeks ago with Bethany in verse 11. Let's read the next line, verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Read that out loud with me. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. There's a story from the first century about two rabbis, Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Shammai was the more kind of closed off and conservative, a bit more grumpy of the two while Hillel was the Portlander. He was more open and progressive, went to Berkeley, something like that. And as you can imagine, there was a running feud between the two. And in this story, a Gentile traveler comes to visit Israel and goes straight to Rabbi Shammai first, and he says, if you can tell me the whole Torah while I'm standing on one foot, I will convert and, you know, worship the God Yahweh or whatever. And in one telling of the story, Shammai is so angry at his blasphemy that he takes a stick and starts to beat the man and chase him away. So the man goes then to Hillel. And same question, if you can tell me the whole Torah while I'm standing on one leg, I will convert. And Hillel says this, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah, the rest is commentary. (laughs) How good is that? Now, does that sound at all familiar? Yeah, it sounds a lot like the saying that we just read from Jesus. Now, this is a few decades before Jesus. So is Jesus just ripping Hillel off like a little Jesus plagiarism or something like that? Well, we'll get to that in just a minute. For now, all I want you to see is that around the time of Jesus, all sorts of rabbis were on the hunt for a way to summarize the Torah for a way to take the library that is the Bible and distill it down to its essence. And this teaching that you have in front of you, chapter seven, verse 12, is Rabbi Jesus's stab at it. Let's work through it phrase by phrase. First off, so, or in Greek it's the word soon, which we usually translate therefore. And whenever you read a soon um, or a therefore, it's a signpost pointing not forward but backward to everything that the author just said. In this case, everything, if you can remember that teaching, everything that Jesus just said about the Father and his love for you as his son or his daughter and his goodness and his generosity toward you. If you then know you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in light of that, the Father's goodness and generosity, Jesus has this to say, in everything, which in the Greek means in everything, all that you do, work, rest, play, your whole life, do to others. Now, this is fascinating. The word that Jesus uses here is anthropoi in Greek, that we translate others, and it means all people. He does not use the word adelphoi, which is very similar, but it's different. Adelphoi means your brother or your sister or your family or your tribe. 
Jesus doesn't use that word. He uses the word anthropoi, all people. It can be translated humanity, family member or stranger, friend or enemy, same gender, different gender, same color skin, different color skin, same religion, different religion. You see how broad in scope Jesus is here. In everything, to all people, meaning this next line is a general rule to live by, and here it is, do to others what you would have them do to you. Very simple. Here's a few other ways to translate the Greek. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Or, the way you want people to treat you is the way you should treat them. Or, here's a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and go do it for them. Do you see what Jesus is saying? No matter the person or the situation, a general rule for how to relate to other people is just to stop for a minute, visualize life in their skin, imagine how you would want to be treated if you were them, and then go do that. Jesus goes on, for this sums up the law and the prophets. More literally in Greek, it's for this is the law and the prophets. Can also be translated, this is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. Or, this is what much of the Bible is about. Or, add up God's law and prophets and this is what you get. If you're new to Jesus and his teaching, like what the law and the prophets, what is that? That was standard first century Jewish verbiage for the Bible of the day. The law, or in Hebrew, the Torah, was the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all written by Moses, and then the prophets were kind of everything else, not just Isaiah and Jeremiah, but really the history, kind of everything else. Uh, an author of the Bible was a prophet. And so Jesus is saying a number of things here. He's doing a number of things. First off, at one level, Jesus is summarizing the Sermon on the Mount. So if you were in lit class and your assignment was to outline the Sermon on the Mount, it would look something like this. First, you would have the intro um, or the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's a poem and it's a beautiful kind of catchy opener to the sermon. Then you have a call, you are the light of the world, city on a hill, you know that famous line, it's Jesus kind of identity and calling over all of his followers. Then you have this, to begin it, you have this teaching on the law and the prophets in chapter five. And it's Jesus in most in-depth teaching on basically the Bible of his day. If you were not here, please go back and listen to it. Um, you know, I do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish the Bible of his day, but to fulfill it. He writes about how, you know, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear until everything is accomplished. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever sets aside one of the least of these commands will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. It's just fascinating, and that passage of Jesus needs to be read and reread time and time again in our kind of new emerging post-Bible millennial fad, which is not a thing. Jesus was a rabbi or a Bible teacher with an off-the-charts high view of the Bible, and the only Bible he had was the part that a lot of us take issue with, the Old Testament. To follow Jesus, to apprentice under Jesus, the Bible teacher, is to take the Bible very seriously. You nuance it out, you explain it, you read it in context, sure, but you take it very seriously. More and more we're hearing this, well, you know, the Bible's open to interpretation. Yeah, but usually there's a right one, you know? 
And, well, I don't know what it says in the Greek. Well, smart people do, and here's the translation. Um, like, and in all honesty, like, because so much of what is in the teachings of Jesus, the writings of the Old Testament, and just as much or more so the writings of the New Testament is counter the culture of a Portland or a West Coast, it's so easy just to write it off and, and think that there's like this post-Bible Christian. There's just not. Jesus is a Bible teacher with an off-the-charts high view of the Bible. And so he begins the sermon. Lots of us, we love the Sermon on the Mount. Do you realize the Sermon on the Mount is a Bible teaching from the Old Testament? Right? So he begins with an in-depth teaching on what the Bible is and what it isn't. Then there are 14 teachings that make up the Sermon on the Mount we've been working through over the last number of months. And each one's basically a Bible teaching. You have heard it said, quote from the Old Testament, but I say to you, Jesus' teaching on that. Right? And he goes forward, and then toward the end, he just starts to riff on like, it's like more jazz or whatever. It's less like exegetical, and it's more like, there's a bird. Think about that. God the Father. And it's brilliant and witty and so good. Then you get through these 14 teachings, and then, listen, then you get this other one-line teaching, again, on the law and the prophets, and that phrase is reused by Jesus. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight, who is one of my favorite um, commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount, calls these two teachings in chapter 5 and here in 711, or 712 as the bookends of the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus begins and then he ends the Sermon on the Mount with a thing on the Bible and in between his Bible teaching, his manifesto for the kind of life that is possible under the rule and the reign of God is simultaneously the kind of life that is possible when you of your own free will and volition come under the authority of God through as it is mediated to you through the library of scripture and you nuance, and you wrestle, and you interpret, and you read in context, sure, but at the end of the day, you live into the story that Jesus called home. And then after that, of course, is an outro that will start next week. All that to say, chapter seven, verse 12, is Jesus' one-line summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount, which just shows you how much of the Sermon on the Mount is about relationship, right? Almost all of it which just shows you how much of following Jesus is about relationship, almost all of it. You know, I was thinking about it this week. At this point in my apprenticeship to Jesus, almost all of my sins have to do with relationships, with what I say or do or don't say or don't do, normally it's the former, to people that I am close to. And so it comes as no surprise that Jesus' one-line summary is do to others what you would have them do to you. For Jesus, you just can't separate out your relationship from God the Father from your relationship to your mom or your friend or your roommate or the person to your right or left or to me or to whoever it is. It's all wrapped up together in this thing that Jesus called life in the kingdom. So first, Jesus is summarizing the Sermon on the Mount, but that's not all he's doing. He's also summarizing the entire Bible. Remember the Hillel story? Later in Matthew's biography, um, if you keep reading, Jesus is asked the exact same question. What's the greatest command in all of the Bible? And that, again, first century language is a common question for a rabbi, and it basically meant, how do you summarize the Bible? Like, this is a, there's a lot in here. Like, what's the essence of it? And Jesus answered by quoting two commands or rules. First, he quoted Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your what? heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the most important command or rule in all of the Bible for Jesus, to love God. 
And then the second, he said, is very similar, and it's from, is a quote from Leviticus 19, and it's love your neighbor as yourself. So listen, here's how it works. If you have to distill everything the Bible has to say about relationships down to a command, it's love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're teaching the Bible and you want to distill it down to a catchy, more tweetable, easy to remember one-liner or an aphorism, a good option is, quote, do to others what you would have them do to you. And Jesus' wit and his intelligence, he's so brilliant, and his creativity paid off. This is, I would argue, the most famous of all of the sayings of Jesus. It has come to be called the golden rule. Do you know where that comes from? I'm guessing no, because I had no idea until a few days ago. Um, It comes from the second century, a Roman emperor, Alexander Severus, who was not a follower of Jesus, but even by the second century, this saying of Jesus had spread across the Mediterranean, was well known, and even though he was not a follower of Jesus, he thought it was such a brilliant and wise saying to live by that he had it inscribed in gold on the wall of his chamber, hence the name the Golden Rule. But the golden rule is not the only rule to live by. Ethicists argue, and this is their paradigm, not my paradigm, that there are at least three rules to live by. The wooden rule, the silver rule, and the golden rule. Short word on each. First off, the wooden rule, which is do to others what they do to you. Some of you are like, wait, that's not a thing? Oh, it's a thing. It goes by the slang of tit for tat. Merriam-Webster defines it as retaliation in kind. Cambridge Dictionary, quote, something, especially something annoying or unpleasant, done to someone because that person has done the same thing to you. But it's not necessarily negative. It's just as likely to be positive. You compliment me, I compliment you back. I like your shoes. I like your jacket. This is the wooden rule, right? Um, I like your sermon. I like your... You, whatever, I'm tired tonight. You buy me lunch, I buy you dinner, oh, it's great. You criticize me, I gossip behind your back. You make a snarky comment to me, I'm passive aggressive. You push me, I punch you in the face, whatever. This is the vicious, we laugh, but this is the vicious cycle that humanity is still locked in. It's like this endless game of ping pong. And it is the lowest level of maturity. It's the level of children, and not even children like my kid's age, toddlers. Sadly, many people never rise above this level of maturity. Many people are 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, but remain emotionally and relationally stuck in unhealthy and toxic patterns of reactivity and revenge. And if you don't believe me, just read the comments on YouTube. That's all I have to say. So that's the wooden rule, and that's where a lot of us are at. Second, then you have the silver rule, which is don't do to others what you would not have them do to you, right? So this is the negative version of Jesus saying. And this is the next level of maturity, and it's a giant leap forward in both personal development and human progress. And it's not a new idea, it's ancient. In fact, it predates Jesus. We already quoted Hillel, what is hateful for you, do not do to your neighbor. In the East, Quite a while before that, Confucius, when he was asked what's the most important thing, he said in one word, reactivity, and then he said, quote, whatever you do not want others to do to you, do not do to them. 
You have the Sanskrit word ahisma, which in Buddhism becomes this idea of do no harm, a central idea in Buddhism. In the West, at the same time, you have this famous maxim from the Stoics, a school of Greek philosophers, quote, what you do not wish to be done to you, do not do to anyone else. My point is this rule, in some form or another, was all over the ancient world long before Jesus of Nazareth. And it is a great rule to live by. I'm all for it. But notice that when you phrase it in the negative and not in the positive, at first it just kind of sounds like semantics. And you hear people say that, well, you know, Jesus, Confucius, Buddha, they're all kind of saying the same thing. Do it to others or don't do it, whatever. But then you think about it. There is a very big difference between not doing something to cause some suffering and doing something to alleviate suffering. Am I right? Do no harm is a great idea. I'm all for it. It's not the same thing as love your enemy. Don't oppress the poor through your shopping habits or your life or whatever. That's great. I'm all for that. Do justice for the poor is a whole other level. Does that make sense? A number of thinkers, and if you take issue with this, is not, this is just an observation, all right? Not just me. Point out that this is why, as a gen, as stereotypes are dangerous, but as a general rule, the East has a much lower value for social justice than the West. In a karmic view of the world, in particular where it's been shaped by Hinduism as well as Buddhism, if somebody is suffering, it's because of sin in a past life. It's justice. And your responsibility is just to not cause more injustice, but then you are done. India in particular is moving in the right direction in beautiful ways, but I was reading not that long ago the Indian intellectual Vishal Mangawaldi, and I was shocked reading this where he writes that basically most of the, social, the growth in social justice in my country, he writes, is due to Christian missionaries. It's like, whoa, that's really intense. My point is, the silver rule is great, but it doesn't get you far enough. It doesn't get you to social justice. It doesn't even get you to love. For that, you need to climb the heights of what has been called the Everest of ethical teaching. You need the golden rule, the positive form. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Now, as far as we can tell, and we don't know for sure, this is a brand new teaching in Jesus' day. As far as we can tell, nobody had ever said this before. It was millennia ahead of its time. In fact, I would argue it is still ahead of its time. You know, I love our city, and so sometimes when I rag on it, just to clarify, I live around the corner, and I'm here, and I love our city, most of it. But, you know, we, we brag about how we're a progressive city. Just think about that statement, a progressive city. What we mean by that is that we have progressed. What we mean by that is we're ahead of everybody else, especially people in middle America or the South. And what we honestly mean by that is we think we're better than everybody else. And so we buy this, what sociologists call the myth of progress, we buy this idea due to evolutionary psychology, and it's not, it's, it's, I think it's a half-truth, but we buy this idea that we have evolved to a higher plane of human consciousness. I mean, we went to community college and have Wikipedia. Come on, right? We're like, especially, you know, here on the West Coast, we're here, we're in a city, we've evolved to this new plane, and we are all about love. And you hear so much talk about love in our city, and that's great. But you notice that love in our city has devolved to tolerance and niceness. What most of us mean by we're all about love is tolerance. I don't judge you. You don't judge me. What's good for you is good for you. Which actually, none of us actually believe that. And if you want to know how hypocritical that is, just say, well, I voted for Trump. All tolerance is gone. 
at that point. It's over. You are out the window, like shame on you or what have you. Hypothetical scenario, all right? And, um, and, uh, and I resonate with that shame for you. So whatever. Um, come on, that was kind of funny. <laughs> no, whatever. I'm so apolitical, it's not even funny. So there's this idea of tolerance. Hey, what's good for you is good for you. Who am I to judge? Live and let live. And then niceness. Like, we really value niceness. So like, smile, tip well. At ev- now we tip for everything, all right? And just drive really slow. <laughs> Welcome to Portland. Tolerance and niceness. And honestly, that's all great. That's not to rag on it. I'm all for tolerance and I'm all for niceness. But that's still silver rule level of maturity, not golden rule. For Jesus, love is less of a feeling and more of an action. It's something that you do. Notice he does not say, feel warm, fuzzy emotions toward people the way that you would want them to feel warm, fuzzy emotions toward you. That's not the teaching. There's a reason that's not a famous saying. Because you don't have control over your feelings. Influence, sure. You have a, like a say in it, but you, you don't, I don't control whether I'm happy or so I control my mind, I control my body, I control my schedule and my time, but I don't, like, I can't control how I feel about somebody else. I can control what I do to somebody else or don't do, what I say or don't say, whether I share or don't share. That's why if you define love as a feeling, in particular as a warm, positive emotion, man, you get in trouble really fast. That is far too shallow and flimsy of a definition of love. For Jesus, if I'm reading his definition of love right, my summary is it's to put another person's happiness ahead of your own. To actively seek the well-being of somebody else, even if it comes at great cost to you. And it is something that you do with your mind, with your body, with your mouth, with your life, with your money, with your time. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Take the initiative. Get out there. Get mud underneath your fingernails. Inconvenience yourself. I love Dr. Gary Bashir's definition of just, a biblical theology of, de- of justice. Quote, inconveniencing yourself for the good of the, quote, worthless person, meaning people that our society does not ascribe worth to. Put somebody else's worth ahead of your own value, happiness ahead of your own. Take it to the next level. Think about them in a thoughtful way. Slow down long enough to get into their life. Think about how you would want to be loved if you were in their situation and then come up with small, creative acts of concrete, ordinary, normal, humble, beautiful love toward them. That is the way of Jesus. You see how radical and ahead of its time, that was and still is. So three rules, the wooden rule. Do to others what they do to you. The silver, do no harm, just don't do to others what you don't want. The golden, do to others. Which rule are you living by? Which rule is the default setting in your relational posture toward your family, toward your community, toward your boyfriend or your spouse or your mom or your dad? Can you imagine if you or I, or can you imagine if we, were to live by the golden rule? Example, the husband and wife are in a tiff. Both are mad as heck. Prefrontal cortex is a distant memory. It's all limbic system at this point. (laughs) 
It's a fight about the grocery budget, but it's never actually about the grocery budget. It's about your mother-in-law and your family of origin and warm culture versus cold, just, you know, hypothetical scenario. And not out of my own life at all. Your wife is venting at you, and as you are prepping your verbal arsenal for a preemptive nuclear strike, you just have the saying of Jesus come to your mind from the Holy Spirit, do to others as you would have them do to you. What if instead of the, what if you just were to take a deep breath, invite the Holy Spirit into your limbic system, take another deep breath, go for a walk, (laughs) (laughs) what if you were to bless and not curse? accept responsibility, apologize. You know, I'm sorry, and this really is a stupid thing to fight about. Can you imagine what that would do to shift the relationship in that moment? You're at work. Darwin was right. It is survival of the fittest. (laughs) If you don't believe in social Darwinism, get a job in corporate America, all right? And it's doggy dog out there, and a coworker or a boss does something hurtful or even harmful to your reputation or even to your career. And so as you are prepping your defense, which is a good offense, like to go on the, what if before you send the email, before you knock on the boss's door, before you speak up, what if you just were to allow the Holy Spirit and the quiet of your inner person to speak over your life, do to others as you would have them do to you? What if you were to ask for the Holy Spirit's eyes on that man or that woman? What if you remember the truism that hurt people hurt, that behind that cutthroat need to get ahead is most likely somebody who never had the love of a father or a mother, somebody who's been rejected, who's finding all their worth and significance in getting the promotion, that maybe you deserve better, but guess what, you don't need it. You don't need that, it's not where your worth comes from, it's not where your significance comes from. What if you were to entrust the future of your career to God? And that doesn't mean be a doormat. doesn't mean you don't speak up for yourself. You know what I'm saying. But what if instead you were to bless and to not curse, to just not send the email, to let your actions speak louder than your words? What if that were to shift the relationship in a moment? You see what I'm getting at here? You know, these sayings of Jesus, in particular the short and well-known ones, are really dangerous because whether you grew up in the church and you've heard this a thousand times, or this is your first time ever in a church, the odds are you already know this saying. You already like it. Most people, who's down on the golden rule? You already have it memorized. I'm guessing, yeah, do to others what you'd have them do to you. And the danger is that familiarity does not breed contempt most of the time. It's, it's far worse. It breeds apathy. And that's far more dangerous, Right? And so we just get used to it, and we get numb to it, and we forget its devastating power to reshape how we relate to other people. And don't let that apathy overcome your emotional experience of this saying of Jesus. As nice as this saying sounds, honestly, I've been dreading teaching this all week long. Some teachings I look forward to, others I dread, and most are in between. But I've been dreading this one um, simply because, in all honesty, Friday night, 
uh, we Sabbath Friday night to Saturday night, and we started our Sabbath with a nice meal and a lovely glass of wine and an animated conversation between my wife and I, also known as a fight. And it's, it's kind of, it had been building for a while, and uh, everything's fine, we're okay in our house, but it's just been kind of a long, hard couple of months, and uh, I've just been traveling a little bit too much, and my wife's health and our oldest hit puberty, enough said. And um, we moved recently just a block away, but to a much smaller place, and it's great. We're very grateful for it, but we're kind of on top of each other. Our kids are all in, all three kids are in one room. I'm an introvert. I have no quiet place right now. So just none of us are all that emotionally healthy. We all value emotional health. We're just not very emotionally healthy right now. And so we're, we're working on it. It's a longer story. But basically, we just have not been at our best. And it kind of all built to a head and to a fight with my wife and I. And, uh, you know, there are two sides to everything in marriage, and most, but it's always like 80% me. And, um, and that's not an exaggeration. That's the truth. And at one point in our animated conversation, my wife, not in anger, just in a calm manner, said, you know, you just have not been nice lately. You've just been mean. And she's right. I'm a perfectionist. When I get emotionally unhealthy, I, I can't love well. That's, and so I get critical, hypercritical, everything. The food's too hot or it's too cold or it's too wet or it's too dry or it's always just not right. And uh, I get easily angered or even more easily annoyed and I just, I'm unpleasant. And that is so embarrassing for me to admit to you. I would love to just stand up here. The reality is I have no moral authority to teach this right now. And so um, I stand up here first in line to repent, not to say, follow me as I follow Christ in this one, unless if step one is just repentance for you as it is for me. And I would love to just stand up here and say, I have just reached like the Jesus Zen Buddha moment of guru, and I have just been transformed into love and ruffle me all you want, put me in a tiny duplex with three children and a teenager and a busy schedule and work and an iPhone in winter. And I am just, <laughs> I'm just full of love and joy and peace and welcome, mm, you know, whatever. But that's like, I'm 37 and I, apparently that's like for 38. I'm still a year out from that one. But the reality is I'm still very much on the journey as we all are. And that's not to excuse my treatment of my wife and my children. It's just honesty. And so I speak to you tonight out of my weakness, not out of my strength. And what I'm getting at is that, Matt, I think the golden rule is great. I love it. Who doesn't love it? It's fantastic. Great. Live by. But the reality is I've not been. And so as I've been thinking about this, just and the need for grace for the empowering of the Spirit, for the need for community. Willpower alone will not do this. My point is not just try really hard in the week ahead to live by the golden rule. My point is what if, what if there's a world where the golden rule becomes the narrative in the background of your mental chatter? It just becomes this story in the back of your mind that you believe and that you live into. And what if with every person and every situation, you just were to create space. Maybe a great practical prayer for the week ahead is, Holy Spirit, bring to my mind the golden rule every time it's necessary. And just what if when that comes to mind, when the Holy Spirit starts, what if you were just to slow down, put away your phone, 
Take a deep breath. Push pause on your verbal assault. Just take a moment. Let it play in your mind. Sink to your heart. What if you just were to utter a one-word prayer? Help. One of the best prayers in the Bible. In Hebrew, it's Hosanna. You know what that means? Help. It just doesn't sound as good to be like, help, or whatever. <laughs> That's not quite the Hillsong vibe, you know? So instead we're like, Hosanna, I have no idea what it means, but wow, this is a cool song. It means help. That's what it means, help. One of the best prayers in the Bible. It got Peter out of drowning. It got Daniel out of a lion's den help. Sometimes that's all we have, help. Help to the Holy Spirit, help to the community. Willpower just won't get you there. I'm all for willpower. It doesn't work with hard stuff. It's a great thing. Get your willpower muscle stronger, but it won't get you there. My point is, what if we were to live into this? Um, also yesterday on Sabbath, I started reading Jordan Peterson's new book, 12 Rules to Live By. Anybody reading that right now? It's the uh, number one best-selling nonfiction book in the world right now, number one on Amazon, all that stuff. So I thought, I'll give it a read. And uh, it's great. He's an evolutionary. The subtitle is An Antidote to Chaos. He's an evolutionary psychologist who was born a Christian. He's kind of quasi-Christian now. And um, so he basically does all this evolutionary psychology and then uh, connects the dots to the Genesis story. And so his whole thing is uh, human condition is about living in the tension of order and chaos, but right now in our cultural moment, everything is freighted to chaos, so we need more order in our life, so we need more rules to live by. And so he writes that he started with 65 and he got it down to 12. And that's great. I've read two of them. They were both pretty good. Jesus, on the other hand, started with 613 rules or commands, and that's just in the Torah, not to mention the rest of the Old Testament, and he got it down to one at least when it comes to interpersonal relationships, and two, when it comes to life as a whole. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, or as a saying, do to others what you would have them do to you. And for Jesus, this is a rule to live by. I love that language. We're so down on rules. Such a tragedy. Rules are what make for a really good life. Rules are the mark of the beginning and the end of the road. It's the yellow line, it's the here's your true north. It's the rhythms and the rituals and the routines that make for what Jesus called life to the full. And so all I wanna offer to you is just this idea, what if you were to live by this rule? What if in every relationship, in every situation, the narrative script in the back of your mind was do to others what you would have them do to you? What if I were to live, what if we we're to live that way in this city. Talk about a countercultural community in our city. You know, um, we've been so conditioned by our capitalistic and individualistic society to believe at least two lies. One is that the main point of life is to be happy. Honestly, the older I get, the less I believe that is true. Peterson would say that's not the main point of life. It is, quote, the development of character through suffering. That's not very tweetable. Viktor Frankl put it another way. He said the main point in life is not happiness, but it's meaning. And what we need far more than happiness is we need meaning and purpose in life. Our world has plenty of happiness to go around. 
Jesus is not just another form of happiness. You want happiness, have you been to Heart Coffee? <laughs> Anybody been to Tusk? I was there for Valentine's Day. Have you had the hummus? Just go make some money. Money makes you really happy to a certain level. It's a statistical fact. If all you're after in life is happiness, there are other quicker ways to it than Jesus. But it won't give you meaning. You can make all the money you want. You can go out to brunch every single weekend. You can drink the best coffee in the world all day long. You can wear, you can get ahead in your career. You can do it all that Portland has to offer. And it, at the end of the day, is chasing after the wind. And even happiness is still not the same thing as joy. For that, you need to live for what you were created for, the meaning and the purpose for which you were handmade by God himself to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what he did. So the first lie is that that's the most important thing, it's just to be happy. Well, I don't think that's true. The second lie is then that in order to be happy, you gotta look out for number one. Man, it's a doggy dog out the world there, so you just gotta take care of number one, put yourself first, be true to yourself, deny yourself nothing or no one, you only live once, just be true to yourself, or whatever the mantra is. You know what I've come to notice? And maybe this is just me, but the people I know who live by that rule, just be true to yourself, point of life is to be happy, are some of the most unhappy and grumpy and selfish and restless people I know. And the people, like my wife, who's here last hour, who genuinely live by the golden rule, who put others' happiness ahead of their own, who don't even make the feeling of pleasure or pain the driving motivation for life and decision-making, but rather make character and contribution. People like that are some of the most happy, at peace, fun to be around, and comfortable in their own skin people that I have ever met. Is that just me? Any of you experience that? If not, Mike, go meet more people, I'm guessing. <laughs> After a while, you will agree. My friends, this is the way of Jesus. It's counterintuitive, and yet once you get your head around it, you're like, oh yeah, of course, duh. That's like, did I just say duh? Wow, so embarrassed. <laughs> it's the most intelligent thing ever. As Jesus said all the time, the last will be first, the first will be last, the humble will be exalted, the exalted will be humbled. It is the upside down way of Jesus. At first you're like, wait, really? The main point of life isn't happiness? Yeah, it's chasing after the wind. So you live for something else and then you discover happiness? It's like, wait, what? Exactly. So in the week ahead, may you, may the Spirit of God and the community to your right and to your left and the teachings of Jesus lead you and guide you into a life marked by the golden rule. May the Holy Spirit bring to mind Jesus saying as you go through your week in conversation after conversation, conflict after conflict, moment after moment. May you slow down long enough to hear his voice in the quiet of your inner world. And may the Holy Spirit overflow through you in small, creative acts of love and joy and peace with all that you come into contact with. And may you not live for happiness, but may you discover on the backside of your life with Jesus a deep, wide joy. Let's stand and pray.